This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Will Yateman has given us two of the infuriating five administrative law cases. Now it's time for the cases with an even larger implication for the size and scope of government. The final three of the administrative law infuriating five. I want to thank our listeners for appreciating the fact that we blew them off last time uh, by not giving them the full five. Uh, I appreciate that. But you understand this is the business. We got to generate listenership. We got to make you salivate a little bit before we get to uh, the really hot stuff. And now here we are. You've already detailed two cases for us that were uh, infuriating with respect to administrative law. And now we're at number three. So tell me, uh, let's recap just quickly the previous two cases. One, is it simply known as Doe? Is that the... Webster versus Doe. Webster Indeed. versus Doe. That one, not a lot of impact, but sort of infuriating on, on the basis of we have statutes that could speak to, to this, that could would inform uh, a court when trying to interpret uh, what they ought to do. And the other case uh, was basically decided that, in fact, uh, the president of the United States his authority is not unfettered when it comes to regulating the activities of certain federal agencies. Yes. And now we're at number three. What is it? Now we're at number three. Um, This is a 2005 Supreme Court case, National Cable and Telecommunications Association versus Brand X Internet Services. And this is known uh, as Brand X for short. And if you've heard of Chevron deference, um, then this is Chevron on steroids. So, uh, uh, of course, the Chevron principle is that courts must defer to agency interpretations of the laws that empower the agencies. Um, In Brand X, what the court did is said that Chevron applies even when the court had previously resolved the statutory question, had previously interpreted the very text at hand, even if that interpretation had been on the federal law books for decades. Um, And this is a big problem for two reasons. One, as Supreme Court Justice John Marshall famously put it in Marbury versus Madison, it is the emphatic duty of courts to say what the law is. Um, And in this instance, we have courts... Having arrived at, uh, you know, after a case in controversy, at the best interpretation of a statute, perhaps uh, that a statute has been, you know, standing on the books for decades, and then an agency comes along and is allowed to trumpet, um, it, it flies in the face of the judicial power and indeed our separation of powers. Uh, the other problem with Brand X is that it breeds instability in the law. Um, for courts to overcome one of their prior determinations, they've got to overcome stare decisis. It's a big deal. Uh, um, for an agency, an agency can come out with a, a, an interpretation after a, a rulemaking, which is to say that when interpretive primacy is given to these administrative agencies over courts, uh, when a Republican president gives way to a Democrat president or vice versa, 
these interpretations change on a dime of 180 degrees. So the practical effect of this Brand X decision is to further facilitate, to grease the wheels of these flip-flops um, by, by, in essence, by giving priority to these ephemeral, if you will, agency interpretations over, you know, an Article Three court's uh, best reading of the law. Yeah, and imagine if you're a, a private sector actor uh, who has made large investments based upon uh, an interpretation of the law, perhaps handed down by the Supreme Court or handed down by uh, an administrative agency, and suddenly you are incredibly invested in the party that will be in control of the White House because you know that your investment might be uh, thrown out the window if the wrong party, from your perspective, uh, takes control of the White House. And, and also, it's, it's strange because you would imagine that a court, even especially a high court, would not want to attenuate its own ability to set things down and say, this is what the law is. I don't know. Look, that was an excellent point, both of them. Um, and you're exactly right. It is uh, it's infuriating, to, to be frank, um, that the court would be willing to disrupt these sorts of reliance interests that could be engendered by, um, you know, a decades old interpretation of a statute put forth by an Article Three court. So, no, it's, uh, uh, you know, it flies in the face of their Article Three duty to say what the law is, and it has all sorts of practical problems when it comes to reliance interests. It's interesting, given uh, Justice Roberts' interest in reliance interests as a, a matter that is worthy of court consideration. Couldn't agree more, and, and I'll note that, that Justice Roberts's push for these reliance interests is a relatively recent phenomenon, certainly more so recent than 2005, the, when Brand X took place. So um, that's a great point, and it does give me hope, perhaps, given this renewed interest in reliance, reliance interest um, from Chief Justice Roberts, that perhaps they'd be willing to rethink a doctrine that I think um, is as poor a fit with our constitutional system as Brand X. Number two. <laughs> Number two. So this is a big one. And it, uh, it was close as to whether or not this was going to be number one. This is a 1992 case, Franklin versus Massachusetts. Um, and this was the source of all sorts of trouble during the Trump administration and uh, likely will be the source of all sorts of trouble during uh, the Biden subsequent administrations. Uh, what the court did here was exempt the president from reasonableness review. Um, I guess a little backstory is necessary here. Uh, 90% of the time, Congress grants regulatory authority to agencies, to regulatory agencies. I've spoken about a number, SEC, EPA, et cetera. A minority of the time, Congress grants regulatory power directly to the president when the president is the regulator, when he's the decision maker. Um, well, so under that Administrative Procedure Act that I've spoken about before, the Constitution of the Administrative State, whenever agencies regulate, their, court, their, their, their actions are subject to judicial review and courts vet what they do for reasonableness. It's a core tenet of this Administrative Procedure Act. In 1992, in this Franklin versus Massachusetts case, 
the court, uh, in essence, said the APA does not apply to the president. And therefore, we are not going to review the president's regulatory decision making for abuse of discretion. Well, here is the glaring problem with that. If you don't look for abuse of discretion, then in essence, in practice, the president is allowed to abuse his discretion. And that's precisely what we saw. Um, you know, when the court decided Franklin, or what we saw in the Trump administration, um, when the court decided Franklin in 1992, there were still perhaps uh, ideals that norms of self-restraint would keep a president in bounds. Um, we saw those norms blown out of water during the Trump administration. So, for example, the the uh, putative national emergency at the border. Um, when it was plainly evident to everyone that there was no such crisis, no such emergency, and that he only declared or only uh, uh, made that emergency declaration to perform an end run around Congress's power of the purse to fund his his border wall. Um, uh, another example would be Trump's national security tariffs um, on steel and aluminum imports. These tariffs applied to Canada our closest neighbor, which by statute is incorporated into Defense Department industrial uh, military planning. Um, it's ludicrous. So, uh, you know, just as there was clearly no national emergency, quite clearly, uh, there was no national security threat um, that, that that justified uh, Trump's trade war. Uh, the long and short of it is that the only reason that President Trump was allowed to get away with this, was allowed to get away with saying these or, or, or making these decisions, the, rendering these executive branch actions that were obviously uh, disingenuous, that, that were obviously, I mean, to be frank, a lie was because the courts wouldn't check, because the Supreme Court wouldn't check. They wouldn't vet his decision for reasonableness. They, they, in essence, the court's position, thanks to Franklin versus Massachusetts, this 1992 case, is that a national emergency is whatever the president says it is. That national security is whatever the president says it was or says it is, even though the president is acting pursuant to a grant from Congress. That functionally speaking, he's no different than a regulatory agency. So uh, this case has had profound and increasing effect. Um, you know, we've got a Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calling on President Biden to declare a climate change emergency so we can unlock all sorts of statutory powers to that end. Um, so the likelihood of further abuse uh, on par with what Trump did, uh, I think is high. And it's all because of this 1992 case, Franklin versus Massachusetts, in which the Supreme Court effectively said, uh, Mr. President, we're simply not going to review you for reasonableness. That's fascinating. Uh, and I, I guess it speaks to, in some ways, the reluctance of courts to weigh in uh, in matters of national security. Was there any indication at the time that the court was concerned about being compelled by federal statute to weigh in on these national security matters? Or was this uh, something that they didn't foresee, at least in the text of their opinions? Well, it's a, a great question. Um, and yes, courts are reluctant. Uh, uh, let me put it this way. The president has independent constitutional power under Article 2 
to deal with national emergencies and to deal. It's all implicit power, to be sure. Um, however, when it comes to these national security tariffs, when it comes to the emergency that Trump declared, these were not exercises of constitutional power. Quite clearly, he was acting pursuant to a grant of power from Congress. I mean, it says so in his, in his proclamations, and his executive orders, when he tapped these statutes. So uh, the long and the short of it is, um, it's unfortunate the extent to which courts do give pause to the mystique of the president's constitutional position. Um, the fact is that if the president wanted to rely on his Article II authority, rather than the authority that was granted to him from Congress, he could do so. But that's not what we saw during the Trump administration. Uh, you know, and I, I would suspect that what we would see in, in future instances. Um, and I should add here, it's uh, in certain areas, for example, these, nas uh, these national security tariffs, um, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the exclusive authority to set import tariffs. It gives Congress the exclusive authority to regulate foreign commerce. And, and these were the constitutional authorities that Congress was acting on when it passed the law that authorized the president to do these, these uh, uh, national security um, import tariffs. Um, that's a way of saying that uh, all too often, it's the gloss of the president's constitutional power that courts see, that, that courts respect. When, when you kind of scratch the surface and look into it, in these instances, the president really is, functionally speaking, no different than an agency. I mean, the president is acting pursuant to a grant of authority from Congress. And if the authority has been granted from Congress, it presumes some sort of limits. It's also jarring in a sense, and you alluded to it here, that the Supreme Court in this case really changed the balance of power between Congress and the White House, specifically the White House, uh, and a whole lot of laws that have been passed for decades relating to trade, relating to immigration, suddenly uh, the president has uh, a whole lot more authority than Congress granted. Is that about right? It's exactly right. I mean, I'll put it this way. If, if the president can claim that something is a national security threat when it clearly is not, um, then that exceeds the authority that was delegated to him. I mean, you know, Congress didn't grant him the authority um, to act willy-nilly, didn't give Grantham the authority, of course, not to abuse discretion, but it, it confined his authority. I mean, th that's what the, that text means, that national security means national security. Um, and here, uh, to be sure, um, I, you know, I think that the president, you know, because of his, his constitutional position, normally does merit deference um, in these sorts of determinations, but it can't be wholesale. It can't be the situation that courts are forced to blind themselves um, to that which is obvious. And certainly when it comes to Trump's trade war with these national security tariffs and, and the border wall construction, this end run around Congress's power of the purse, on his own terms, I mean, you know, Trump being Trump, he was very upfront about being disingenuous. He was very upfront about abusing the law. So it is a... Uh, 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 
it's just a, a, a terrible injustice when courts have to blind themselves um, to the harms wrought by arbitrary power. Now I'm hearing the passion in your voice. It was that, that case wa- gets me angry. And I want to take make a note here. That was the number two most infuriating <laughs> administrative law case that you have come across in your vast research. What is the number one most infuriating case to Will Yateman on administrative law? It was close, but number one, uh, the number one most infuriating case in administrative law is INS v. Chatta. Um, This is a 1983 case in which the Supreme Court held that the legislative veto, and I'll explain what that is, is unconstitutional. And, And this more so than any other case I can imagine has unleashed the administrative state. So let me explain. Um, as we've spoken of uh, kind of a number of times throughout this interview, the, the basis of the administrative state is this is what's known as this congressional delegation. Uh, that is, it's when Congress passes a law that gives some of its policymaking power to an administrative agency or to the president. This notion of delegation, which, you know, again, is a late 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon. That's when the administrative state sort of came on board, has always existed uneasily within our constitutional structure. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got executive branch lawmaking going on. Um, This sort of blending um, of the legislative and executive powers, it's, you know, it was perhaps born of necessity. Uh, born by popular demand, you know, in a rapidly changing country for more government. And again, I'm talking about 100 years ago. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, it's an uneasy fit within our constitutional system. From the start, Congress mitigated sort of the, the inherent constitutional ills of these delegations by pairing them with what is known as a legislative veto. And, and what a legislative veto does is it allows Congress unilaterally, without the president's signature, to uh, to nix, to strike down an administrative action. These were crucial. So Congress, there were 292 of these legislative vetoes and the various laws that, that empowered the agencies that collectively are known as the administrative state. It, it was just part of a bargain. I mean, Congress was giving away its power, but it was maintaining some. Um, to an important degree, one that, you know, sort of made it work constitutionally, if you will. Um, The system persisted as such for 80 years until 1983. And again, you know, just a foundational element of of the administrative state. Uh, Wholesale in INS v. Chatta, the Supreme Court struck them all down. It said that these legislative vetoes were in effect, they were legislation, that the Constitution sets forth a process for legislation. Um, You know, it it has to be passed in the House and the Senate and ultimately signed by the president. And that because these legislative vetoes did not do so, that they were uh, constitutionally null. So it's just impossible to overstate the ramifications of this case. Um, It's, you know, it's in essence, one way to think about it is that the Supreme Court in allowing for these capacious delegations from Congress um, to the executive branch, uh, you know, it was sort of allowing for uh, uh, constitutional fluidity, (laughs) uh, for lack of a better term. Um, And to allow it in that context 
But then to strike down on these sort of ultra-formalist grounds uh, what was a necessary complement to what is this to delegation? I mean, you know, which again is constitutionally anomalous, which doesn't make much sense within our system. Um, by striking down this legislative veto, which sort of made it work, uh, the Supreme Court is really, in my opinion, that more so than anything, um, has has removed Congress from the equation. Has really made president the paramount policymaker. In, in federal government. Um, he's the lawmaker in chief now, in essence. All, all he has to do to get his way is to issue an executive order ordering an agency to adopt a, a, an expansive interpretation of a, a long extant statute. Or, you know, if he's been delegated the authority directly, he can do whatever the heck he wants, <laughs> you know, as, as I just discussed. So that's a very, very big deal that has, uh, in essence, uh, uh, destroyed a common sense arrangement that had persisted for decades that made the uh, the constitutional uneasiness of the administrative state more palatable. So Congress uh, has a lot of power. It's Article One for a reason. Uh, and when they distribute that power to some executive agency and then place conditions on that power, which is to say your power is conditional, you know, it depends on us not repealing it on any individual action. You can take a broad action within a category, but individual actions, we might shoot some of those down. Um, the court essentially said, you're not allowed to strike that deal. Is that basically it? Exactamundo. It said, if you want to strike that down, you got to go through the whole kit and caboodle of the legislating process, which, which and the key component there is you got to get the president's signature. And no president in his right mind is going to sign a law that strikes down a regulation that the president just issued. Um, so, it, you know, the court's reasoning uh, rendered the legislative veto a nullity. I mean, it's useless now. Um, and to the detriment of our separated powers. You have just gone through the five most infuriating cases to Will Yateman in the field of administrative law. So what is your expectation? You, you mentioned this in our last recording. Uh, what is your expectation about the willingness of courts, broadly speaking, to begin to dismantle a lot of the elements that have moved the balance of power to, if not the executive branch broadly, to specifically to the White House or specifically to administrative agencies. We're in a wonderful spot. Um, multiple doctrines that I won't get into, but that would go a long way towards reining in administrative policymaking and it's sort of the extent to which it's run amok. There is a critical mass of justices now on the court, the Supreme Court, and uh, with a keen interest in these issues. Um, it, it, frankly, they're led by Chief Justice Roberts, who uh, for his entire tenure um, has been a constant proponent of, of these core administrative law values, safeguarding individual liberty. Um, and he's expressed repeatedly concern over the growth of administrative policymaking and the extent to which it's, it's now entangled within you know, all elements of daily life. So it's not just the Trump justices. Um, I really am heartened and rendered optimistic by the Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and I 
you've seen this in a number of decisions. Um, Commerce Department versus New York, um, Department of Regents uh, versus DHS, in which Chief Justice Roberts has staked out bold new administrative law doctrines. I mean, he's really pushing the ball forward. These opinions, uh, King v. Burwell is another one. And I realize that case is highly objectionable on other grounds, but there was some good administrative law doctrine in there. Um, So the long and short of it is I'm, uh, you know, administrative law generally makes the eyes glaze over. And it's all too often that, that judges, rather than deal with it, will just defer to agencies. Right now, I'm pleased to say that we've got uh, even the justices I disagree with. Elena Kagan, she's an administrative law expert. She knows she's forgotten more about administrative law than I'll ever know. Um, so we've got a very capable court um, with a lot of expertise. And, and frankly, the majority of justices whose values on this particular issue, uh, I think, are in line with uh, those that advance liberty. So I'm optimistic. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.